0: We're now at verse 9, James 1, verse 9, 9 to 11. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. This is one of the temptations or one of the trials one might have, that is to have humble circumstances, to have less means, to have less wealth than one's neighbor, and then covet and envy and be jealous of, <clears throat> and maybe even steal what your neighbor has. And here he's telling us and warning us that we should not do that. If we have humble circumstances, the antidote to sinning with those humble circumstances is to glory in our high position. We who are nothing now, in Christ, we have a status that is a high status. We are His children. We are a part of His kingdom. We are subjects in His kingdom. So we are wealthy. We have eternity. We have suffering now, but glory later. Romans 8, 17. Suffering now and glory later. Or like Luke 16. 19 to 31, the rich man and Lazarus. Right. The rich man had everything now, but he has nothing later. Lazarus had nothing now, but he has everything later. That's what he's saying here, that we should consider our circumstances, physical circumstances. If we are discouraged by them, we should glory in our high position in Christ. And then the rich man, what, will, what should the rich man do? If he is a rich believer, if he's a rich believer and that's possible, then he should glory in his humiliation. Meaning, glory in the fact that his soul needed to be humbled. He needed to realize he is nothing before God and in need of salvation in Christ. Believe in the grace of Christ, the death of Christ. He needs to believe in Christ For his salvation because his riches will not pay or pave his way to heaven. That won't happen. It, It can only happen by Christ. So the rich man has to humble himself to enter into God's kingdom. And when we said that the rich man can be a rich believer. In fact, this is both of these examples. Both the rich and the poor are used in James 2. James 2, 2.21-25. In 2.21, first, he describes Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, who was a rich man. He was rich, the father of the Hebrew nation, and a man. And then in 25, he describes a woman, a prostitute, and a Canaanites, Rahab which is the opposite of Abraham. But what is the key component? They both understand faith in Christ. 21, 221. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believe God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? It's likely that she was poor, being a harlot, and we do know from Genesis, starting in Genesis 12, that Abraham was wealthy. He was wealthy until the day he died. From 12 to 25 of Genesis, he had ample wealth, more than he needed, but he had faith in Christ. And that's what James is teaching us. We should all have faith and not hold our faith in Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Chapter 2, verse 1. And what's the reality? Verse 11 Just as grass and beauty and flowers, they fade away and fall away, even to our wealth in the midst of our pursuits, they will all fade away. They will one day vanish. Either God will take the wealth away from us or God will take our life away from us. One way or the other, we're not going to be able to use our wealth in the life to come. Wow. <clears throat> Luke 12, Luke 12, we have a parable of a man who was very rich but suddenly he died and nothing became of his wealth. Luke 12:16. This is in response to a covetous man starting in verse 13. 13 to 15 a covetous man. And then 16, the parable. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid for your for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So, the man, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Christ said that the possessions, the wealth, could vanish away. Matthew six nineteen. Matthew six nineteen. do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Moths, rust, thieves. Even James said in James 5, 3, your gold and your silver have rusted. Your gold and your silver have rusted. So the material world is passing away, so we should be focused on the immaterial world, the unseen world of faith. Verse 12, blessed is the man, James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We have this blessing, the same kind of blessing that's mentioned in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 to 12, and the same kind of blessing that's mentioned in Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. In the same way, this blessing is for the man who perseveres under trial. This is just like he said in chapter 1, 2 to 4 knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing the outcome of perseverance is what approval he says approval the approval of God verse 12 for once he has been approved who are we seeking to please only god, only god we should only God. Though they, many of the Pharisees believed in him, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. John twelve forty two to 43. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. James, on the other hand, is teaching us that we should not be seeking the approval of men, but the approval of God alone. Galatians 1, Galatians 1:10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Or I would not be a slave of Christ. Right. Paul and James are happy to call themselves slaves of Christ because we want His approval, not the approval of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what will result? The crown of life. The crown of life. Those who have eternal life will be decked. They will receive the wreath, the imperishable wreath or the crown of life because we who truly possess it it will be acknowledged on that day that we are the possessors of it. In contrast to those who don't. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's on the day of judgment. The crown of life for us. It's for those who love Him. The Lord has promised to those who love Him. God keeps His promises but it's also for those who love him it's not for those who hate him not for those who pretend to love him but those who truly love him because if we truly love him we will keep his commandments john 14:15 if you love me you will keep my commandments those are the ones who truly love him 1 john 1 John 4, First John 4, 19, 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God, should love his brother also. Right. This doctrine of loving God originates with God. It's only possible to love God because God first loved us. 4.19, we love because He first loved us. 4.10, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us right. and sent His Son to be the propitiation For our sins. The love originates with God. And then the proof that God's love has been perfected in us. Which is 1 John 2, 3 to 6. The proof that God's love has been perfected in us. Is that we love one another. And if we love one another, we love God. And that's the eternal life. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. These trials work out for our good because we love him and we prove our love by loving our neighbor, which is also what James emphasizes. He's going to begin to emphasize this in 119 and throughout the letter. You say you love God. Well, why doesn't it show? Look at the way you treat each other. Right. Now, 13 to 15, James 1.13. He addresses temptation and the source of temptation. So far, he's been speaking of trials, trials and testings. But according to James, there's a difference between trials, testings and temptations. When he is addressing temptations, he means temptations to do evil. God is not tempting people to do evil. He doesn't tempt us to do evil. The fundamental source of our temptations to do evil come from the flesh, according to 13 to 15. Not from God. So 13... Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. And this person means, I am being tempted to do evil by God. That's what he means here in 13 to 15. Because he does say the word word evil in verse 13. For God cannot be tempted by evil. By evil. And then he calls it lust, sin, sin. And death, it brings forth death in 14 and 15. That's, that's the sense in which he's using this phrase, tempted by God. And the accuser, I am being tempted by God. Okay, so God is not the tempter. Who is the tempter then? Satan, Satan is. The world, the flesh, and the devil, but Satan controlling the world and enticing the flesh They tempt us to do evil. God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. The temptations to do evil, we cannot tempt God to do evil. He's not going to do evil. Nor does God, in the reverse, tempt us from heaven below to us. He doesn't tempt us to do evil. It does not happen. But somebody might say, how does this relate to these other passages? Well, let's see. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, 1, two, 3. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And verse 3, he's called the tempter. The devil is called the tempter. Verse 10, he's called Satan. Same prince or ruler of the demons, the devil or Satan, the tempter. Who is tempting Christ to do evil? It's Satan. It's Satan. But notice here, he was led up by the Spirit right. to be tempted by the devil. Is the Spirit to be blamed for a temptation here? Well, if the Spirit had not led Jesus into the wilderness, then the devil couldn't have tempted Him there in the wilderness. But is the Spirit to be blamed? No. no. That's a distinction we have to make, even when we read the book of James. Look also in the Lord's prayer. Matthew 6. Matthew 6 and verse 13. 6:13 13 says, "This is our common prayer, is it not? And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation. How would God lead us into temptation? God will lead or direct us, put us in the occasion, but God is not the one actually doing the tempting in that occasion. And it's okay to pray, not to be led into those circumstances, into those occasions. It's not okay, not only okay, it's good. Right here it says in 13, and do not lead us into temptation. It's a part of the prayer. God may not answer the prayer according to that. He may put us in that uh, situation or circumstance, occasion of temptation, to be tempted by the devil or to be tempted by a friend or to be tempted by an enemy or a stranger, whoever. He might do that, but the fault is not God, so we cannot say, I am being tempted by God. If God presents the scenario to us, he is not to be blamed. God is the primary cause, but he's not blamed. Only the secondary causes, the secondary agents, which might be a friend, an enemy, a stranger, an animal, whatever, might tempt us, but not God. James is meaning it like that. Um, actually, also let's also read... Luke, Luke chapter 4, just to confirm what we're saying here. Luke 4 on two points. Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. This is the parallel account to Matthew 4. It says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. The spirit mentioned in Matthew is the same spirit of Luke 4, verse 1, who is the Holy Spirit. So this was the Holy Spirit of God, and he was full of the Holy Spirit when this happened. All right, back to James 1, 1, 14. But each one, where is the blame to be centered? But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We are tempted when we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. Lust in the Bible sometimes has to do with sexual desire, illicit sexual desire, but at other times, like this passage, it has to do with any evil desire. Any evil desire is sin, such as even James 4, verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain... So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This evil desire is coming from within. He says in 15, then when lust has conceived, where do you think the conception of lust takes place? In the inner man, right? In the flesh. It's not taking place by our finger or by our toe, correct? It's not the lobe of our ear tempting us. It's not that doing it. It's happening from within us. Yes, our hands and feet and our ears, our eyes, whatever other parts will be used to accomplish the sin, practically speaking, but it originate, it is conceived inside, inside of us. When it is, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So that sin is on display. It is manifested. That which was hidden inside the womb is now unhidden, unconcealed outside the womb. It gives birth to sin. That's the way he's describing sin. Starting inside and manifesting itself outside. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. He's describing a stillborn baby. It brings forth death. The baby came out, but the baby was born dead. That's the way our sin is. Sin starts on the inside, manifests itself on the outside. Sin produces death. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 And in this way, We ought not to be deceived. Do not be deceived. Deception is very easy. Self-deception and deceiving others, it's very easy to do. Especially for the unbeliever. Because the unbeliever is controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 1-3. You are of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. John eight forty four. This deception coming from Satan and coupled with the flesh as, as well with the deception of the world, which is also a corporate flesh, if we may say, personal individual flesh. And then the world is a corporate or group bombardment of the flesh upon us. That's what we have. And Satan uses both to deceive us. Do not be deceived. It's very easy for that to happen. Therefore, all the more, we must understand every thought, every view, every worldview, every perspective must be in submission to the Word of God. My beloved brethren. We notice as we read the letter, that he uses this phrase, brethren, brothers. Brethren, an old word for brothers. He uses it in the plural quite often. And in this case, as well, such as verse 19, he says, my beloved brethren. 116, 119, my beloved brethren. These are terms of endearment, my beloved brethren, because he's identifying with them as being a part of the family of God. And to the extent that they live up to it, it is true of them. But he's not meaning that everyone that he addresses as my beloved brethren actually is a beloved brethren. Because they meet together, because they confess Christ, because they read the Word, because they do some Christian activities... He's saying, my beloved brethren, and he wants them because he is a minister of souls, right? Eternal souls. He's a pastor, a shepherd of souls. He cares for them. So he wants these people who claim the faith to be truly of the faith. We know he has that in mind because of what he's saying throughout this letter. Double-minded men, unstable in all their ways, they're not going to receive anything from the Lord, correct? And he, here he says that there are people in 122 who are merely hearers who delude themselves well they're not going to be saved in chapter 2 1 to 13 when we show partiality we are a judge of the law and we are transgressors and God will judge us for it 214 to 26 faith and works if we have no works meaning good deeds as a fruit of faith, if we don't have those works, we prove that we don't have true faith. We have nothing but deadness. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James, throughout this letter, from beginning to end, he's challenging those who profess to be actually those who truly believe. If they don't show by their good deeds by the fruit of the Spirit in them, then they're not truly brethren. But it doesn't stop us from speaking generally and having concern for everyone who hears. My beloved brethren. We also note he uses a pleasant, good term, my beloved brethren. But at other times, what did he do? He called them double minded, unstable in all your ways. What else? Adulteresses. Uh, yes, adulteresses. Four four. You adulteresses. He didn't just say adulteresses, he says you adulteresses. He says also in two twenty, you foolish fellow. Nobody likes it when we introduce a name with you. You <laughs> foolish fellow. It's bad enough to hear foolish fellow. Adulteress. But you adulterous, nobody likes that, but he's doing that throughout here. He says that in four eight. you sinners, you double-minded. So when he's pursuing the truth and desires that truth to be instilled in the people, he uses these pleasant, endearing terms. But when he's confronting sin, when he's confronting sin by people who are arrogant, obstinate, stubborn in their sin, he tells them what they need to hear. You sinners, you double-minded, you adulteresses, so forth. That's what he's doing. And that's the way Jesus did. That's the way the prophets did. That's the way we should do. So then... If we're not to be deceived about the origin of sin and temptation, then what should we know about God? If we cannot blame God for evil, 117, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift is from above. John 3, 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from above. John 3, 27. John the Baptist said that. What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. So every good thing, every perfect gift comes from heaven, because it comes from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is not fickle. God is not double-minded, unstable in all his ways. He's the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Israel, are not consumed. Malachi 3 6. People change. People are double minded and unstable, but not God. That's why when he says, which the Lord has promised to those who love him, verse 12, we ought to have that truth fixed in our mind that God is reliable, he's steadfast, he's stable. He doesn't change, like a shadow changes and shifts from place to place. Hebrews 6.13 six thirteen to 20. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end, of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in, the, in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it, or has he spoken? And will he not make it good? Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. Everything good comes from God. That's demonstrated in Genesis chapter 1, is it not? Genesis 1, when he created all things, and behold, it was very good. All things, Genesis 1, 31, were created good. And he wants us to keep that before us Day to day, moment by moment, so that we understand where our focus should be in dealing with the trials of life, including temptations to sin. His example, his first example of the goodness of God, and the most important one, is one eighteen, James one eighteen. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Right. God brought us forth. How? In the exercise of his will. Right. This does not say, in the exercise of his will with our will. Nope. It doesn't say that. It says, in the exercise of his will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 First Peter 1.3 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who caused us, has caused us to be born again? God did it's not God in cooperation with our will, nope. not at all. Romans nine also eliminates that possibility. Romans 9:16 9, 9:16. 16. 9, 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on the man, but on God. So God's not waiting for the free will of man. Nope. He's not waiting for the good will of man. No way. It can't happen. It doesn't happen. John, John chapter 1, John 1, 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13. Often when this passage is cited, it's cited without reading verse 13. And yet verse 13 completes the sentence. Yes, it's 2 verses, but 13 completes the sentence and the crucial thought or the crucial point that the apostle is making on which everything hinges. 1:12 But as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. That's the end of it. Receive Christ, they say. Receive Christ. Look to Christ. receive Christ, trust Christ, look to Christ, believe in Christ. Look to Christ, believe in Christ. They say this again and again and again. Believe in Him. Then you'll be a child of God. Okay, that's how they leave it. But look at 13. Who were born? Born what? Children of God. Born, not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right. Who were born not of blood. Our bloodline, our lineage, our genealogy has nothing to do with it. Nor of the will of the flesh. Right. Romans 9.16 said, so then it does not depend on the man who wills. John says here, 1.13, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Will of man, will of man may be a reference to one man helping another man be saved. That one man helps another to be saved. The NIV renders it husband, more specifically a husband, but likely that's not what John the Apostle meant. He meant another man. One man cannot save another man. Psalm 497, 497 7 to 9. Psalm 49, 7 to 9. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. No man can by any means redeem his brother. John the Apostle says the same. So if it's not blood, It's not the flesh. It's not another man. We are born of God. If we are born of God, then we have faith and we are saved. We have to be reborn first. Then a reborn or rebirthed heart has faith in Christ and then repents of sin and begins to live A life of love of God and fear of God. Starts to seek to please the Lord. To live a godly life. That's what John means here. And that's what James meant when he says in the exercise of his will. He brought us forth. When he brought us forth so that he says here, it is by the word of truth. By the word of truth. Of all the words, of all the descriptions, adjectives that he could have used, he says, word of truth. That's an important expression. Why would he say that? Because often, it's not the truth that people are proclaiming. It's falsehood. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 7 says, In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. The word of truth, power of God, weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. He's describing in chapter 6, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians, the Bible the word of Christ, the word, which is the word of truth. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. That's where the power is, in the truth. Ephesians 1.13. 1.13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The message of truth, what is that message? The gospel of your salvation. That's where the emphasis is. Colossians 1, Colossians 1, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel the word of truth equals the gospel according to colossians 1 verse 5 and when we read james many people refer to james many people like this letter but have they really considered have they really considered what he's saying here and how strongly He is fighting against how strongly he is combating sin. He's doing it without mincing words. Because when we speak the truth, inevitably, that's what it is. You cannot mince words, mix it with some sugar, with a lot of truth. It cannot be that way. It has to be the straight truth, the word of truth. True, Spoken forthrightly, spoken sincerely, spoken with conviction, that's what it has to be. And even if it becomes harsh. And like we said, when he says, double-minded, you double-minded, you sinners, you adulteresses, you foolish fellow, that sounds harsh, does it not? But the question is, is harshness... Is speaking the truth necessarily sin? Is it necessarily sin? The answer is no. Because otherwise, James, Paul, yeah. you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before, Jesus, uh, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Galatians 3.1. And he said many harsh things in that letter. So that he says in four sixteen, Have I therefore become your enemy? By telling you the truth? <laughs> Even a prophet, a prophet of the Old Testament, the prophet Ahijah. In first Kings four fourteen verse six, first Kings fourteen, six, the word of the Lord came to Ahijah the prophet, to the wife of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, an evil king about his sick son 14:6 And it came about when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway that he said Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh message. He calls it by the word of the Lord a harsh message. And what was contained in that message? that his son would die and that Jeroboam's kingdom would not last. God would cut it off, cut off every male in the kingdom. And he uses a graphic way of describing every male. Every every male who urinates against the wall. I'm going to cut off every one of them and your son's going to die. But it was the truth. It was what needed to be said. James also is saying the same thing. It's the word of truth. When we hear the truth, what we really need to hear, that's what saves us. And we become, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. We become a precious and treasured possession to God. The, the joyous possession Of the first fruits, whenever the first harvest comes. That's the way God, He looks at us. Revelation 14, 4. Revelation 14, 4. We are described in this way. 14, verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And verse 5, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. These are the redeemed. The redeemed are the first fruits precious and special, in the sight of God. 19, we pick it up at verse 19. 19 to 21, and then we'll go 22 to 27. 19 to 21. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. We know these truths, but if we know these truths, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to hear what? The word, the word of God, which he just mentioned in verse 18. Slow to speak. We shouldn't be quick to speak and to contradict and to doubt, to be irritated, to be um, bitter and hard-hearted toward the word of God that we hear. Slow to speak. Remember Job. Job and his friends did well for seven days But seven days wasn't long enough. And Job was the first one to break the silence in chapter 3. He shouldn't have broke the silence, broken the silence. He shouldn't have done that. He was quick to speak. He should have kept quiet. And even his wife, he rebuked her for it in chapter 2, verse 9, 9 and 10. She said, "Why?" She said, you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't sin when he confronted his wife. She spoke up quickly, even more quickly than Job did. And then Job spoke up quickly when his friends arrived. He waited seven days, but seven wasn't long enough because the rest, or the middle section of the book, chapters 3 to 31, take up some of his complaints against God because God would not answer him as though God was obligated to answer him. No, we should be quick to hear the Word of God, slow to speak in contradiction to the Word of God, and slow to anger. We shouldn't be angry at God, ever. Never should we presume. Whenever the thought, the temptation to be angry at God, and even the messengers of God who proclaim the Word of God, whenever we have that anger, that is sinful, and we have to beat it down immediately before a word comes out, before an action is performed that shows the fruit of our anger. We have to cut it out, beat it down, obliterate it. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, he doesn't say you can never speak, and he doesn't say you can never be angry, um, as though in every situation. But in context, he's speaking specifically of our reaction to God's Word. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. It is never right to be angry at God or angry at God through the messengers of God. It's never right to be angry like that. Never right. It's always sin. Therefore, when we hear the word of God against All filthiness against every wickedness that remains within us. Remember what we said earlier? We believe in progressive sanctification. We do obtain a new heart, new desires, new aspirations, new goals, new virtues in life upon our conversion. But we still need to overcome sin. As individuals, as families, as churches, we have to overcome sin, and that takes a process. That's gradual, that's progressive. That's why he says, whatever filthiness and whatever remaining wickedness, we have to put aside. And put aside is the terminology of clothing. The terminology of clothing to put aside Put off off dirty clothes, dirty and smelly clothes, and put on clean clothing. The dirty clothes and clean. Peter, 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3, using the same phrase. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile or deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. We who have tasted the kindness of the Lord are to grow in respect to salvation. And how are we growing? What is the means of our growth? The word, the pure milk of the word. And while we grow, In the pure milk of the word, we put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That's the kind of filthiness and wickedness that should not remain in us. And back to James. James speaking similarly to Peter. Also, you will notice in James, there are many similarities between James and 1 Peter and also many similarities between James and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five to seven, and also many between James and the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, Matthew five to seven, and first Peter. You'll see, even in our study, we'll go back and forth to many of these references. Okay, then, as we just read in first Peter two, one to three, He says it right here in one verse, verse 21. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. In humility. That means that if we are quick to speak and quick to anger, if we are doing anything uh, that he listed above in verses 1 to 19, then that means it's in pride in pride that which conforms to the word implanted which is able to save our souls is in humility everything that's contrary to it is in pride that means those seeking to be faithful to the word are humble people even when nominal christianity and the world says you people are proud when we are seeking to conform our life to the life of Christ, according to the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ, that is humility. In humility, receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The Word implanted saves us. That's why we need it. Yeah. <laughs> First Peter 1, 22 to 25. First Peter 1, 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. He says that this word is what caused us to be born again. It's the one that saves our soul. If this is all true, he's been speaking about what we ought to think, how we should respond. Now he's going to focus in 22 to 27 on the practical nature of everything he's saying. He's going to focus in 22 to 27 in tangible, concrete, physical ways that we prove that we truly believe. We say prove because he says prove. Verse 22 But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. We must be doers, not merely hearers. We do need to hear. That's why he says not merely hearers. We do need to hear the word, but we can't be merely hearers who delude themselves. This is delusion, deception, deceit, self-delusion. To just hear and not do it. This is actually... Commonly what happens, we may call it intellectualism. We, we may call it knowledge, informationalism, that people, when they are perplexed about the Bible, when they're confused about the Bible, they've heard a little there, here, a little there in their childhood, but th- there's been nobody who puts it together, who makes sense of it from Genesis to Revelation. Then they encounter somebody who knows who knows how to put it together, theologically, intellectually, in terms of the information, in terms of harmonizing the Bible, being able to explain it in a nutshell and to make sense of the parts. And there are many people like that who are able to do that. Many in terms of number, not percentage. But there are people who are able to do that. The problem, however, if those same expositors are not expecting the doing of the word, if they are not expecting holiness, if they are not expecting godliness, if they're not preaching against sin, promoting righteousness and holiness, if they're not doing that, they are making their people merely hearers of the word who delude themselves. This is often what happens. And this happens especially, as, as far as Protestants are concerned, it happens especially when one leaves the Pentecostal and Charismatic churches and he finds a Reformed Calvinistic church. The Pentecostal Charismatic churches, they have a hodgepodge of beliefs and many confusing and contradictory things. And their adherents... When they reach maturity in terms of mental and then with some experience in life, let's say by age 25, 30, 40 years old, they begin to look around and say, this doesn't make sense. These people, I, I read the Bible, I read that same passage, but it doesn't relate to what he just said. And then the behavior that's a result of it doesn't make sense. So they're scratching their head trying to figure out what's going on. And what do they do? They find that there's another set of churches called Reformed or Calvinistic churches, and they are able to explain the Bible correctly. They'll interpret it in context in a much better way than the Pentecostal churches do. However, today's Reformed churches, the majority of them are not expecting holiness. They tout a perverted form of Christian liberty. Christian liberty, properly understood, biblically understood, and historically understood, is a true doctrine. But they make Christian liberty lawlessness. They make Christian liberty licentiousness. They are antinomian. They don't want to tell their people, you must obey the words of God. You must live a holy life. That is a sin. That word is a sin. That thought is a sin. You can't do that and be a Christian. You need to repent. Those churches don't do it. Well, these are all falling into this category right here. They are merely hearers who delude themselves. And then when holiness is expected, they up and run. They say, you are a legalist. You're a Pharisee. And then they walk away. Both the Pentecostal side and the superficial reform side, they'll both say that. You are teaching... Works righteousness, you are self righteous and you look down on others. No, we're just trying to be faithful to the Bible and we see the reality what's going on. You brought up the subject to me. What do you want me to do? Lie to you? I'm going to tell you what the word says. Because if I don't tell you what the word says, you are deluding yourselves and I'm helping you delude yourself. So then, once we hear it, what should our response be? 23. For if Anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Yes, typically this happens day to day. When we look in the mirror, we don't remember all the contours and looks of our face. We, we are forgetful. And it's okay in many cases to forget the way we look. But here he's saying that... Just like we do that on a day-to-day level, but we cannot do that on the spiritual level. We have to know who we are. We have to know who we are. We have to remember who we are. And how can we we remember who we are? Verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty... And abides by it, not having become a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. We are blessed by God when we look intently. So that's no casual understanding of the Bible. No superficial reading of the Bible. But we have to look intently at the Bible. It takes work. For Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach His statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra 7.10. The literal rendering, the translation is study the law of the Lord, which is an intense word, but it says He sought it. To seek after it, to seek for something is not just to see something or look at something. It requires effort. And that's what Ezra did. Not only did he do that, but he practiced it and then he taught it. That's similar to what James is telling us here. We must look intently. Then we must not forget what we heard. Remember, which requires repetition. So don't disdain repetition when somebody has to remind us or when the preacher has to remind us. Don't disdain that Rejoice in that, because he says, we cannot be a forgetful here. Well, repetition will help us to remember. Yes, 2 Peter 1.12. 2 Peter 1.12 to 15. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. Always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it Right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. He says he's going to stir them up by way of A reminder. Moses in Deuteronomy constantly says, do not forget. Do not forget. Remember, do not forget. We must. that The way is to keep hearing, to keep discussing, keep studying, keep memorizing, keep trying to understand, talk to others to try to understand, keep preaching it to others, evangelize, These are the ways that we constantly have the word of God on the forefront of our minds. He says here, if we do so, we are an effectual doer. We're not empty, but we have substance. We have fruit. This is what he's aiming to show. That the one who loves God should love his brother also. We cannot love God but hate our brother. Right. First John four twenty to twenty one. He's saying it must show itself in true actions. If the actions are not there, then the attitude is not there. The right attitude is not. Further, he says this. He calls the word the perfect law the law of liberty it is perfect right. and it is the law of liberty it's a perfect liberating law perfect liberating law in 1st peter or no, First uh, James James two verse twelve. He says it similarly, two twelve. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. He calls the Bible the law of liberty. First Peter two sixteen, two sixteen. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. It is the law of liberty. Even in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 45, the prophet says, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. What is James meaning then? If this liberty is possible and experienced in the Old Testament, Psalm 119.45, yeah. if this liberty is what should be our focus in James 1.25, if we are supposed to act as free men but not practice sin, then what is this liberty? It is liberty from the condemnation of the sins we have committed. We are freed from condemnation. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Because we are in Christ. Also, we are liberated from the power of our sin. We have it upon conversion and then it grows throughout our life and finally on the day of judgment or the return of Christ we experience it 100%. So we are being transformed, we are being liberated from the power of our sins. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1:18 1, and 19. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We are being saved. And of course, when we are in heaven, we will be perfectly conformed to the perfect law. Because we will not sin anymore. And because we won't sin anymore, there will no longer be any pain, crying, mourning, or death. Revelation 21.4 And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's the law of liberty. But law of liberty does not mean I can live without laws. Right. He doesn't mean that. Reading the book of James shows he doesn't mean that. In fact... He doesn't mean it based on verses 26 and 27 in the immediate context. He says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. That's not going to save us. (laughs) So that means that the law of liberty does not give us a platform to have an unbridled tongue. It does not give us the ability to deceive our own hearts. And it does not give us the ability to have a religion that is worthless. Because if you have a worthless religion, where do you go? Go straight to hell. (laughs) He immediately puts a curb on anybody thinking perfect law, law of liberty means there are no constraints or no commandments to obey. And then he illustrates again in 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. If we want to practice pure and undefiled religion, pure and undefiled, in the sight of our God and Father, because He's the one seeing it all, then we ought to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, he doesn't mean orphans and widows whenever they want something or beg you for something. He says, in their distress. When they have a valid need, a legitimate need, then we should meet those needs. Orphans and widows in their distress. He doesn't mean to indulge the poor, to indulge the downtrodden. He means to help them. And what is the first thing we need to do when we visit orphans and widows? They might need a loaf of bread, but if we don't have the bread of life to deliver to them, then physical bread is just going to last them a couple of days. We have to deliver the bread of life to them for them to be saved. And... Keep oneself unstained by the world. The world is constantly trying to stain us. Constantly t- trying to tarnish us. Constantly trying to influence and bombard us to make us be like them. But we have to constantly resist. Constantly. 4 4, James 4 4, you adulteresses, do you not know? that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, on these two points of verse 27, John comments as well. 1 John 3, 3, 16-18, on helping. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But, wh- but whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And then on the matter of the world. 1 John two fifteen to 17. 2, 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.